Romans chapter 5, we're just going to be looking at verse 2 today. It's one verse, but it's just loaded with, uh, with good stuff to encourage you as a believer. And I hope today that that's what the message does, because that's really what Paul's doing in Romans 5. He's talking about, if you remember, if you were here last week, he's shifting gears from chapter 4 to chapter 5, and what he basically has done from chapter 1 and chapter 4 is he's tried to convince his readers... First of all, of why he's writing his letter and why he has given his entire life to the gospel. Why he tells, why he's telling people the gospel, why he goes from city to city, even though he's been imprisoned and he's being stoned half to death with rocks. Okay, I have to give context for what we mean when we say stoned today, physically, with rocks. He's come within an inch of his life in many of the different places that he's gone to. Yet he says, I am obligated to all people. He says, because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all people. There's not a single people group out there that gets a pass. Uh, we might be advanced, um, you know, post-enlightenment West that we are here in America. That doesn't make us any more favorable in God's eyes uh, than anyone else around the world. We all need the gospel. And he establishes this need for the gospel to save us in chapters 1 through 4. In chapters 3 and 4, he talks to specifically these legalists who are putting their faith in the law of God. So this would have been the Jews, the Jewish hearers of his time and Jewish believers in the church in Romans. He's trying to encourage them, listen, this is a whole new, this is a whole new thing, Christianity. It's, it's not legalism 2.0. It's not a second version of Old Testament Israel living by Levitical laws. That's not what Christianity is. Because there was a tendency within the Jewish believing community to Judaize Christianity. To take the gospel and make it into something which he says in Galatians 1 is really not another gospel at all. There's no good news factor to it. It's just Bad news, part two. Now in chapter five, he says, now, for all of us, he's talking to believers, his audience is the church in Rome, he's saying, now, for all of us, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, regardless of where you're from, whether you are what he would call a Greek, that is, someone who's cultured, or a barbarian, someone that's from an area of the world that had not been Hellenized yet, was not Greek-speaking, had not been influenced by the Greek and Roman worldview and philosophy. He says, for all of you who are Christians all around the world, who come from all these different backgrounds, I have good news for you. You are all the same in Christ. You are all in the same family and then he starts in verse 1, which we looked at last week. Therefore, having been justified by faith, he's saying, now, I'm talking to all of you who are, who are believers, who have been justified by faith. But you're very different from one another. He says, we, us, all of us, 
have peace with God. Yes, regardless of the government authorities in the, in the culture in which you live, regardless of how, what kind of ideology they, they adopt, regardless if you are a free person or not free under their regime, regardless of the cultural pressures or challenges that you have or the customs, this is true of everyone who believes in Christ. We are justified through Christ and we all have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we, looked, we discovered last week that throughout chapter five, he repeats that phrase, through Jesus, through Jesus, through Christ, through Jesus Christ. That's the theme of this whole chapter. To tell you and to tell me, to convince us and to encourage us of all that we have and all that we are through Jesus. And apart from him, we have nothing. Apart from him, we are nobody in God's sight. We are children of God only through faith in Christ because it's only through the relationship that we have through Christ that we're adopted into God's family. And so when we talk about each other as brothers and sisters, when we talk about other people who are part of the church of God all across the world, we talk about them as brothers and sisters. And in the first century AD, this was a scandalous thing because those who didn't know anything about the church, especially the Romans, they would hear gossip that these Christians, these people who belonged to the way, they were, uh, they were incestuous because they were, husbands and wives were calling themselves brother and sister in public. There's brother so-and-so, there's sister so-and-so. Wait a minute, aren't you guys married? Oh, the Christianity, it's incestuous. So even from the beginning of the church, Christians talked to one another, even husbands and wives talked to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. There is this peace with God that we have through Christ and it changes our identity. Now in chapter two, he's gonna share with us several other truths. Things that remain constant. Things that will never change for you if you belong to Christ. Now there are very few constants in life today. Every time I look in the mirror, that, it's a reminder. As we grow older, our ways of thinking change. Our political leanings even change. Our values, our interests change, are subject to change. Sometimes the very way in which a person views reality changes over time. But the new life that you and I have in Christ, the new life of the Christian, there is one constant that never changes. And that is faith. And you say, well, hold on, Luke. There are times in my life where I think my faith has been weaker Maybe your faith, you feel like your faith is weak right now compared to maybe other times in your Christian walk where you felt like your faith was strong. Here's a, here's a great thing about faith and our relationship with Christ. Jesus talks about the faith of a mustard seed in his ministry. If you just have a faith in, in, a, in a mustard seed, this is a very, very tiny thing, right? His point is, it's, it's not the amount of faith. It's not as though every person has a faith meter, and some are higher than others. 
if that were the, if that were the source of our salvation or our assurance, we would be trusting in ourselves and in our, in our own abilities. And our faith would be completely misplaced. But it doesn't matter how you feel in your faith. If your faith is in Christ, whether it's a lot, whatever that looks like, or a little, you have faith in Christ. It's not about how much faith you think you have compared to someone else or different periods in your life. The, the question is, Simply, do you have faith in Christ? And so when people come to me and they say, my faith is weak, I'm not really sure if I, the question's always the same. Do you believe in Christ? Do you trust him? Yes, I trust him. Do you trust him? Are you following him? Do you believe in him? It's simple faith. It doesn't change. We change, but faith doesn't change because the faith that we have in Christ, the Bible says, is even in itself is a gift of God in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. But the first thing that we're going to notice about the life of faith in this one short verse, the new life of faith through Christ. What does that new life look like? Notice where he begins. Through Christ... We have obtained our introduction by faith. Step one is we are introduced. New life, that is, begins by faith. That's how it all starts. Sometimes I will talk to students at GCU and, and uh, they'll talk about, in, in several papers that we give them to talk about their, their faith experiences or spiritual experiences, they'll say things like, I didn't grow up in the church. Kind of wear that as a badge of honor. You know, like, I grew up on the street, you know. <laughs> and then others like, well, I grew up my whole life in the church, in, my, in a Christian home, you know. But it wasn't real for me until whatever part of their life. We tend to, we tend to look back at the, the moment of our entrance, introduction into the faith with either a positive or negative lens. Well, I, I grew up this way or I was brought into the church this way or whatever, and everybody has different testimonies. I will even meet some people who say, you know what, I don't have a compelling testimony. I have a boring testimony. I mean, I wasn't dying from a drug overdose when an angel appeared to me and God convinced me of my sin and my need for him and I cried out for help and he saved me and he healed me and, you know, my testimony is a boring testimony. And that is, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom and dad drugged me to church. I got involved in youth group. It's what people did. I went to youth camp. I heard the gospel preached every week. And at some point in my life, I became a Christian. But hey, what else was I gonna do, right? I mean, that's just the way I grew up or whatever. I have a boring testimony. Listen, there's no such thing as a boring testimony. And this is why. Because every single person who is saved by the grace of God needed the grace of God in the same measure as everybody else. We all need Christ in the same amount as everybody else in this room. No one needs him more. No one needs him less. No one is closer to God before Christ 
than anybody else. We all need him. As a matter of fact, Paul, Paul says in Galatians and in Philippians that his pharisaical godliness, his spirituality was a huge burden, an encumbrance to him coming to the faith. He was so zealous for spiritual things that he was a persecutor of the church. And though he thought he was really close to God, in fact, he says, I was the chief of sinners. New life begins by faith. We all have our introduction into the faith through Christ. None of us any more or less than the other because the Bible says he gives life to what is dead. That's what happens at salvation. The way that we come to faith, the way that we can get to that place later on in the verse where it says we're standing in the faith is we have to have access to God through Christ. We have to have that introduction into the faith. There's an article that I read uh, recently encouraging entrepreneurs and businesses uh, to market themselves in certain ways. And uh, one of the main features in this article was encouraging, was encouraging entrepreneurs and business owners to be in the right place at the right time. They say sometimes being successful is just being in the right place at the right time. Now, you can purposefully try to do that, right? When you market your business, getting out and trying to be strategic and trying to intersect the right people, going to those um, chamber of commerce meetings, right? And intersecting with other business owners and trying to network and being in the right place at the right time. You'll hear stories of people who, who became famous simply because they were, they were in the same elevator as some investor who was willing to invest in them. Being in the right place at the right time. We might tend to think that Looking back or, or even close to today, if, if, if you're very new to the faith, that that moment that you gained access to God, that it was just a matter of I was just in the right place at the right time. But the Bible says that's not so for us. That's not how we gain access. We don't gain access from getting really close to God. I was far from God. I got close to God. And because I was close to God, he let me in. It's not the way that it works. There's an old hymn that says, says it more clearly, I think, that reflects the, the change in a Christian when we began that new life of faith. It says, I was, this is, this, is what I, this is where I was, I was sinking deep in sin. The imagery of being out in the middle of dangerous water. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. Then the master of the sea heard my despairing cry and from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. That's a proper reflection of what it means to have access to God through faith in Christ. It's not that we're close to God and then right place, right time, we come into the family of God, but he pulls us out of, the, out of the muck and out of the mire. We all have the same type of beginning. John Newton, you maybe have heard, he's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, Saved a Wretch Like Me. 
He was a slave ship captain in England several hundred years ago. He became a Christian. And there's testimony of a plaque that he had over his mantelpiece after he became the curate of Olney in Buckinghamshire. On this plaque, there were pieces of two different verses. And put together, they read, quote, Since you are precious and honored in my sight, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. As Newton's reputation increased and he gained popularity as a writer, as a preacher, as a hymn writer, it was all the more important to him to remind himself of how he came to faith in the first place. Slave ship owner. A slave of sin and to sin. So this is how we have our introduction into the faith. We must not forget it. This is how we're introduced. And this is how, listen, other people are introduced. But also, this word in some of your Bibles might even say access. Through him, we have access instead of introduction. We have access by faith. Now, this term reflects the way that we can actually come to God. It's only through Christ and it's only by faith. Ephesians 2.18 says that through him, that is through Christ, we all, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. All of us have access in the same way. That is, God is no respecter of persons. I've never, I've never been to a nightclub, but I see on TV there are people that try to skip the line to get into the club and like bouncers, these big giant men, you know, are like, you can get in, you can't, you know, whatever. What do you have to show them to get in? When it comes to coming into the family of God, when it comes to coming into the household of God, we all have the same access. It's through Christ. Men, women, children, people who grew up in a Christian home, people who didn't, people who live in a Christian nation, so to speak, or the post-Christian West, we all have the same access. It's only through Christ. It's not through his mother. It's not through Paul. It's not through Stephen. It's not through any of the other so-called saints. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. One. Faith alone in Christ alone will always be the only way of introduction into a saving relationship with God the Father and creator of the universe. Likewise, it will never cease to be the only way of introduction into the Christian faith. To assume this way of access and introduction would change over time like we change over time, like there are not many constants to life. To assume that our access and introduction would change over time like these other things would be to diminish the holy nature of God the Father to demean the justifying righteousness of Christ the Son and his atoning work on the cross and 
to downplay the seriousness of our sin. And as Christians, we can do none of these things. The second thing that we notice is that new life is sustained by faith. Do you see what he says there in verse two? After he talks about gaining access, he talks about standing. Standing. Through whom, that is Christ, also we've obtained our introduction, that's one, by faith. Into the grace in which we stand. This is the idea of being sustained by the grace of God through faith. Of standing. I want you to keep, mark your place there and go back to Psalm 1. Go back in your Bibles in the Old Testament to Psalm 1 because I want you to see this and I want you to see it in your own Bible. If you have your own Bible with you. Because you're going to notice in Romans 2, there's a progression. It's almost like there are three different phases that mirror what we see in Psalm chapter 1. In Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You notice those three things? Walking, standing, sitting. Now I want to read for you what Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, says about this progression. He says the three complete phrases show three aspects or degrees of departure away from God by portraying conformity to this world at three different levels. Accepting its advice... Number one, that is, walking in the counsel of the wicked. Accepting its advice, being party to its ways, he says, and adopting the most fatal of its attitudes. For the scoffers, if not the most scandalous sinners, are the farthest from repentance. Do you see what the psalmist says there? He's... he's, giving us this progression away from God. Paul says it's just the opposite when it comes to those who by faith in Christ alone come into, have our introduction into the faith, into the family of God, into the church. We see that digression reversed. He says, through Christ we have received our access that's just the the basic that's the sitting the basic access and that progresses to what the standing the sustenance and then finally he says in verse 2 here back in Romans 5 and we exult that means rejoice in hope hope is always where it's in front of us right it's not behind us We're looking for Christ's return. We're looking toward the fulfillment of all things. We're looking for the end of suffering and pain and death 
and life eternal. It's in the future. And so we're pressing on. It's something we're looking for. It's something we're walking to. So no longer are we as believers walking in the counsel of the wicked. We're walking toward the fulfillment of all things through Christ. Life eternal. This is one of the reasons, y'all, I love the Bible. It's a, it's a living and active. Do you see it? Everything changes through Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2, Paul says, For I delivered to you, talking to the church in Corinth, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised according to the scriptures. But he says to them in verse 2, he says, I delivered to you as of first importance. He tells them about the gospel. He tells them what he's already told them. And he says this about their faith in the gospel. He says, in it you stand. He says, the gospel in which you stand if, if you have not believed in vain. He says, look, I, I have no doubt that you are standing in the gospel, that you're standing in faith if, if you've been introduced. The way that you're introduced is through the, the proclamation of the word of God. You have to hear the good news. You have to know how it is to be saved. Who is Jesus? What has he done? That's the introduction. And when you put your faith in Christ, then you have assurance of salvation. You can stand in the midst of anything because of who Jesus is. I love it. He questions some believers in the churches in Galatia because they have begun, they have been introduced to the faith, they've given a profession of faith, and he assumes they're going to continue to stand in the faith. However, he learns that many of them who've received the gospel are starting to live in a way contrary to the good news. They're starting to believe some of the Judaizers of their time. They're starting to stress ceremonial, purification, rituals. They're telling believers that if you're really a believer in Christ, that's great, but you also must be circumcised to be a true member of the way. And Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, guy who knows the law like the back of his hand, confronts them. And he asked them the question. He says, you who have begun by faith, you who have had your introduction and your access to God by faith, he asked them this question. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now seeking to be perfected by the flesh? Are you standing in Christ? Are you standing in grace because if you forsake the grace of God that gained you access, you're not moving forward anymore. You're not, there's no hope for you in the future. You've reverted back. And so he, he challenges them very seriously to consider their actions. Pressures will come in the Christian life. But Jesus tells us we can stand you can stand. 
you will stand. Jesus directs his disciples' uh, attention to the birds of the air and the flowers of the field. God knows how to care for them. Doesn't he care about you much more? Yes. And if any of you belong to PETA, I'm sorry if I offended you. But Jesus does say that human beings are more valuable than flowers and birds, right? That should be encouraging to us that we can stand. In John 16, he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. There's an article by Blake Stilwell about the Battle of Iwo Jima and how important it was and still is not only to the Marine Corps but also to our nation as a whole but specifically to the Marine Corps. I want to share a few of these reasons. He shares six. I'm just going to take a couple that I think are important to what we're talking about. He says number uh, one of the reasons why it was so important to the Marines is because it was one of the bloodiest battles in the history of the Marine Corps. When the battle was over, 6,800 Americans were dead and a farther, a further 26,000 wounded or missing. This means 850 Americans died for every square mile of the island fortress. Only 216 Japanese troops were taken prisoner. Another reason he gives, the reason it's so, another reason it's so important, he says more gallantry was on display at Iwo Jima than any other battle before or since. Iwo Jima saw more medals of honor awarded for actions there than any other single battle in American history. A total of 27 were awarded. 22 to Marines and five to Navy corpsmen. In all of World War II, only 81 Marines and 57 sailors were awarded the medal. To put it in a statistical perspective, he writes, 20% of all World War II Navy and Marine Corps Medals of Honor were earned at Iwo Jima. And if you didn't know these statistics, you will know the image of the men struggling to lift the flag. He says this is another reason why it's so important to Marines. The iconic flag raising became the symbol for all Marines who died in service. He writes, Associated Press photographer Joe Rosenthal's photo of Marines raising the flag on Iwo Jima's Mount Suribachi is perhaps one of the best known war photos ever taken. Raising the American flag at the island's highest point sent a clear message to both the Marines below and the Japanese defenders. In the years that followed, the image took on a more important role, he says. The raising of the flag, and, and this is the part that is so moving to me in thinking about this passage in Romans. Raising the American flag at the island's highest point sent a clear message to both the Marines below and the Japanese defenders. We are standing. We are still here. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 4, listen to what 
the writer of Hebrews says to you and to me as Christians who are standing on the promises of God in the fight. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You can stand in Christ in the grace of God Paul says it's through Christ we've obtained our introduction it's through Christ that we have access and it is only through Christ that we can stand so stand in him finally the new life also culminates in glorifying God by faith he says we exalt in hope which means rejoice we rejoice in hope of the glory of God this is what is in our vision this is what we see in front of us the reason for our suffering at least the fruit and the reward of our suffering is in a word, God's glory. It's his glory. And his glory is our good. It culminates. So again, in comparison to Psalm 1, this is not a degrading, this is not a downgrading procession. It just gets better. It just gets better. So he says we rejoice. We're going to see next week that we can even rejoice in our pain. But nevertheless, we rejoice. We look forward. This is the very purpose for which we were created. To bring God glory. To be pleasing to him. When the New Testament talks about the worship in the early church, it's compared to an aroma like an incense. The psalmist speaks of worship like this as well. Let our praise arise as incense to the Lord. Whenever God decided to uh, judge Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the imagery that the, that the Lord uses to talk about the evil in Sodom and Gomorrah was that it was like a stench that reached his nostrils, speaking anthropomorphically, so that we understand kind of what that's like. You ever walked into a room, somebody smells something you don't smell and then it hits you? You're like, oh, and then you can't get it out? <laughs> it's just really hard to get the smell out? That's what our worship is like. We, when we worship God, when we give him praise, when we glorify him, when we exalt, when we rejoice in the glory of God, it's like a sweet aroma. 
In Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about his ministry as being a type of aroma to God and a benefit to the church. He says in Philippians 2.18, and Paul, by the way, spent years in prison and wrote extensively while he was in prison. He's writing a church. He's writing churches, encouraging them. And he knows what could happen. He says in chapter one of Philippians, he says, I'm hard pressed between one direction and another. I don't know what, I don't know what to do, but more than that, I don't know how to feel about this. Knowing what to do is not so much my problem. God is sovereign and he's going to send me where he sends me and use me how he wants to use me and for that I glorify his name. He said, but Paul says, I'm just not sure how to feel about what happens. If I, if I stay in prison, okay, if I stay in prison, that's a good thing because my imprisonment actually furthers the gospel because people are talking about Jesus even more, some for bad reasons, some for good. He said, but if I'm not in prison, I get to be with you, the church, and I get to minister to you more, and I get to be ministered to more. And he's like, I don't know which one to choose. But then he says in chapter two, he says, but, verse 17, even if, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I exult. I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. There are mutual effects of glorifying God in the church. Paul's writing letters to bodies of believers called churches and he's saying to the church my ministry is all about you my glorifying God involves you and your glorifying God involves me the new life in Christ is not meant to be lived in isolation from other believers It's not meant to be some introduction into something that we just sit in for the rest of our life. No, we're introduced, we gain access, and we stand by God's grace through faith in Christ and we encourage each other to stand. But then finally, we also glorify God together and we give each other reasons to glorify God and to look for that blessed hope of his coming. As we travel heavenward, our faith must be expressed more substantially in community with our church family. I believe that. Today, people are falling away from the church community. For whatever reason. And that's not a sign of true faith. Paul says here in Romans 5, 2, he says, you've gained your introduction You have access through the faith. You stand through the faith in Christ and you move forward together with other believers in faith. When our faith is under fire, we bring glory to God when we stay together as 
one. The new life of Christ culminates in community and it culminates in giving God the glory by faith. I love God's word. I love the shifting of gears of chapter five that tell us, that point us to Christ immediately to Christ and show us what we have through him, through him alone, what we have together, what we have to look forward to. I hope that it encourages you. Next week, we'll be looking at what it means to be going through trials and tests and tribulations. And though many will look at suffering and say, I cannot see how a loving God would allow human suffering. How does this, how, how does this work out? We're gonna look at that next week. I encourage you to be here and be a part of that. Would you pray with me? Father, we turn our attention to you at this time, Lord, after reading your word and hearing your word preached. God, how I hope that it encourages everyone listening online, watching online, and everyone here in this room. And God, we confess that in our hearts and minds, we we don't have the strength of faith at times that we need. We have doubts. We struggle. Father, Father, your word tells us, reminds us, establishes for us the fact that our salvation is all your work and that we must respond to you in faith believing things that are hard to believe, that you would love us so much to give your one and only son not just to send him to this earth and to this squalor that we've created, but Father, that he would even walk among us, eat at our table, wash our feet, and ultimately, give himself up and go to the cross for us. And yet, God, our flesh is weak and our minds are weak and trying to wrap our, our heads around that. Father, just a mustard seed of faith, just simple, unadulterated belief and faith in the person and work of Christ is the way in which all of his benefits and all of his person are given to us freely by you. So Lord, strengthen our faith today as we encounter your word. Cause your Holy Spirit to work in us even more today. That as we're encouraged, that as we're reminded of how we have our access into your presence, that we're encouraged even more to stand, that we can see the faith of others and let that encourage us to stand, that we can also 
We can also be the person at the top of that hill raising the flag that others can look to. As someone who is putting all of themselves upon the mercy of our God through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would move forward together in expectation of what's going to come. And that that joy that we have would far surpass any other trial, test, or tribulation, or pain, or suffering that we encounter in this life. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to be more faithful 